I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. This morning we will be hearing God's Word from Hebrews 6 verses 13 through 20. But before we hear God's Word to us this morning, let us call upon His name once again in prayer. Father of glory, you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And so we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Reveal yourself to us, for we can only know you if you give yourself to be known. We ask this through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of God to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God to us. Why do we swear oaths? The Bible tells us our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And yet we often require more than a simple yes or no. Even as kids, we make pinky promises to express how serious and committed we are. In business and real estate, we sign legally binding contracts. We don't just accept a yes or no. When testifying in civil or judicial cases, we swear oaths to tell the truth. Why won't a simple yes or no suffice? Well, the answer essentially is because of sin. Because of sin's corruption, we are untrusting and we are untrustworthy. We naturally doubt that others have our best interests at heart, and we can't always be trusted to keep our word. Because of sin, we are not always reliable. We break promises. We lie and deceive. We are self-centered. We assume the worst in others, and so we swear oaths. 
Oaths, therefore, are given to hold each other accountable, to allow relationships and societies to exist in a corrupted world. Oaths confirm truth, and they are intended to overcome doubt. This is why we swear by something greater than ourselves, something or someone that we value highly, that we would hate to bring shame or reproach upon. We swear by something or someone greater than ourselves, one who can hold us accountable if we fail to do what we have said we will do. And in this way, oaths hold our feet to the fire, creating consequences for our fickle hearts and lying lips. They are like a guardrail, keeping us from driving off the road of truth and trust into the ditch of deceit and broken promises. But if this is why we swear oaths, why would God swear an oath? Doesn't the very idea dishonor him, suggesting that he could be untrustworthy or deceitful when he is trustworthy and true? He is faithful and just. Aren't oaths unnecessary for God and far beneath him? Why would he possibly stoop so low as to swear an oath to sinful men? And yet, the stunning revelation of Hebrews chapter 6 is that God did exactly that. He swore an oath to a man, to a sinner. So the question I want to ask this morning is why? Why would God swear an oath? That's the controlling question I want you to keep in your mind as we walk through this text, hopefully into the light of greater understanding. But let's begin where we left off last week. Last week, we heard the author's soul-shaking warning that it is impossible to restore to repentance those who received many covenant blessings, but then ultimately walked away from the God of the covenant. One of the kids even came up to me after last week's service with wide eyes and said, that was intense. It is intense. These aren't casual, take them or leave them warnings. They are serious and we must take them seriously. But the author's desire in giving this soul-shaking warning was not to destroy your gospel assurance. It was to establish it. He warns the Hebrews not because he is despairing of their salvation, but because he is confident in their salvation. And he wants each and every one of them to share in his confidence, to show, as it says in verse 11, the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that they will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, as it says in verse 12. So his desire is for them to have the full assurance of hope. His desire is for them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience actually inherit the promises. So he immediately moves on in verse 13 to give them a specific example of the faith and patience he's talking about. That he wants them to imitate. 
as well as giving them an unshakable foundation for their faith to rest upon, to give them that full assurance of hope, like an anchor for their soul to keep them from actually drifting away. Now, the example of faith and patience is none other than the great father Abraham. Throughout the Bible, Abraham is held up as the archetype of faith. The author will mention Abraham again later in chapter 11. And whenever Paul is discussing justification by faith alone in his letters, he tends to point to Abraham to prove his point. For you read in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17 about God promising to bless Abraham, to give him a son through whom he will have many descendants, more numerous than the stars in the heavens or the sand upon the seashore. He promises to make Abraham into a great nation with a great name, to give him a wonderful land and to be his God and the God of all of his offspring. And Abraham, we are told in Genesis 15, 6, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God gave Abraham a glorious promise and Abraham believed. He exhibited faith and he exhibited patience because the promise wasn't fulfilled all at once. Abraham had to be patient even look, when it looked like he would never have a son by his barren wife, Sarah. So it's no wonder that Paul calls Abraham the man of faith in Galatians 3. And Abraham's faith wasn't disappointed. Having patiently waited, we're told in verse 15, he actually obtained the promise. So the author holds up Abraham as the exemplar of faith and patience who inherited God's promise. Because he wants the Hebrews to imitate Abraham's example. But it would be incorrect to think that the author's main point in these verses is to hold up Abraham's faith. Because it's not Abraham's faith as much as the ground of Abraham's faith that the author is interested in. It's not faith in the promise that concerns him as much as the certainty of the promise that deserves our faith. In other words, the author wants the Hebrews to imitate Abraham's faith, but he believes they're only going to do that if they are looking to the same thing that Abraham was looking to. And Abraham looked to the certainty of God's promise, which was confirmed by God's oath. You read in verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now the Old Testament context and where the author is quoting from is not actually Genesis 12, 15, or 17. It is Genesis 22, which takes place years after Isaac is born. So God had long ago given Abraham a promise, but in Genesis 22, he confirms that promise with an oath, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. The author is paraphrasing here. In, in Genesis 22:16, you hear God say, by myself, I have sworn. 
In verse 16 of our text, the author acknowledges that among men, people always swear by something greater than themselves. This is to confirm their word and end any argument about whether or not they will keep their promise. You swear, therefore, by what you value most and would never want to bring reproach or shame upon. This Friday for family night, we often watch a movie on Friday night and this week we got to watch one of my favorites. I don't enjoy most of the movies we watch on family night because my, my kids pick them. But I picked this one, or I convinced my five-year-old to pick this one. That's what it was. And we watched The Princess Bride. If you've ever seen that, you remember the scene where the man in black is climbing up the cliff. Inigo Montoya is waiting for him, but he's getting impatient because it's taking him a while. So he says, I, I can throw down a rope for you to come up, but you probably won't trust me because I'm just waiting up here to kill you. But he says, I, I swear on my name as a Spaniard that you will not die until you reach the top. And the man in black says, I've met too many Spaniards. That's no good. And so Inigo Montoya looks down at him and says, I swear on the soul of my father and Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. And that's good enough for the man in black. Because he, he can tell that an Ego Montoya would never want any shame to come upon the soul of his father. So we swear by what we value or we swear by what will hold us accountable. You will therefore be motivated to keep your word so that you don't suffer the consequences. In Israel, the supreme oath was as surely as the Lord lives. There is nothing more valuable than the good name of the Lord. And there is no one greater who can hold you accountable. So to lie under oath was not only breaking the ninth commandment, it was breaking the third commandment. Which says not to take the Lord's name in vain. And there would be serious consequences for breaking God's commandments. You would be liable to God's judgment and covenant curses. But of course there is no one higher than God or more valuable than God. By which anyone can swear. So God has to swear by his own name. And no one cares about the glory of his name than God does. You read in Isaiah 42, 8, where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And he says in Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God gives Abraham a promise and then he confirms that promise with an irrevocable oath. For there is no way in heaven or on earth that God Almighty is going to shame his own name. But that brings me back to my question. Why does God bother to swear this oath to Abraham? Isn't God's promise enough? Yes. And didn't Abraham already believe the promise? Yes. So why the oath? For two reasons. The first reason is explicit in our text. And it reveals to you the heart of God. 
The second reason is implicit in the text and it reveals the providence of God. So first is the explicit reason which reveals the heart of God. You read in verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Notice first the word desired. God swore an oath because he desired something. It reveals something that he wants to show. What he desired was to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. These verses are riddled with legal language. And in a legal context, the word for show means to give convincing beyond the shadow of a doubt proof. God wanted to prove something not only to Abraham, but we see to all the heirs of the promise. For remember that the Abrahamic covenant is not just for Abraham, it is for all of Abraham's offspring, all of the heirs of the promise. And who are Abraham's offspring? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 329. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So to be Abraham's true offspring and heir of the promise, you must belong to Christ and you belong to Christ by faith. So the author is talking about God's oath to Abraham because he believes it directly applies to the Hebrews. God's oath to Abraham was given to prove something to Abraham, but it was also given to prove something to every heir of the promise, which includes the Hebrews receiving this letter, and it includes you and me as we have faith in Christ. So what does it prove? It proves the unchangeable character of his purpose. God wanted Abraham to know that his promise would never fail because his purpose would never change. He, he's not going to stop doing what he said he would do because his aim, his goal always remains the same. So his promise is as, is as unchangeable as his purpose. And he wanted Abraham and every heir of the promise to know by these two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, that he would never fail to keep his word. So that in this way, they wouldn't just be encouraged. They would have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before them. Do you understand what the author is arguing here? God didn't give an oath because his promise was fickle or could change. The promise was already unchangeable. God can't lie. It's impossible. Last week we learned about a very scary impossibility. This is a very encouraging impossibility. God can't lie. His word is always true because he is truth. 
Now that reality makes us take his warnings seriously, but it should also lead us to take his promises seriously. God, therefore, didn't give the oath because the promise could change. He gave the oath simply because he wanted his people to have not one, but two unchangeable things. To trust him, to stabilize their hope. He didn't just want to encourage them. He wanted strong encouragement to keep holding on by faith. He didn't want to just lessen their doubt. He wanted to obliterate it. Imagine if your doubt is like a large boulder that's blocking your path as you're hiking through the mountains. God didn't just want to nudge it to the side so you could barely squeeze past and keep going. He's dropping nuclear bombs on it so that it's, it's not in sight. And he doesn't drop one bomb, he drops two. Why? Because he just wants you to absolutely trust him. God swears an oath then, not because he is untrustworthy, but because he knows we're still untrusting. He knows our faith, which must endure, is small, fickle, and frail. If our faith is, is like a boat, and we have to sail across the ocean, let's admit it, the boat that we're Sailing in is a, a tiny little rowboat that has tons of holes and is constantly taking in, in water. So we're rowing frantically and we're constantly trying to get the water out. It's not very reliable. So God's promise and oath are like sending two massive unsinkable steamships to pick up our little rowboat and place it on its deck. Now, you don't actually need two unsinkable steamships to get you across. To have your little rowboat on the deck of one of them, you're making it across. You're never going to sink. And yet God knows that even as we are on the deck of the first unsinkable steamship, we're constantly going to be thinking, but what if it does sink? What do I do then? So what does God do? He just sends a second one so that every time you're doubting the one you're on, you can just look over and say, well, if this one sinks, there's another one right there. Never going to happen, but the sight of the second one just gives you strong encouragement. You're going to make it. That's what's happening here. The promise was sheer grace. But God just wanted to lavish more grace. So he just keeps piling it on with the oaths. And he does this because he is gentle with your fail faith and persistent doubts. And he wants you sailing with the greatest sense of security you could possibly have. Now think about this for a minute. We should never doubt God. God is absolutely trustworthy and true. He deserves absolute trust. And to doubt God's word is to doubt his character. We're actually saying, God, I'm not sure you're really good. That, that's not okay. We shouldn't be doubting who God is. But instead of striking us dead, which is what we deserve, he says, okay, I'll give you even more assurance. Praise God that he is gentle with doubting sinners like you and me. How gracious, how compassionate, 
How gentle and kind is our God. He gives us abundant grace, and when he, we question it, he just keeps overflowing with more grace. The gospel is grace upon grace upon grace. The heart of God toward his people is unlimited love and lavish grace. Remember the, the image of God's cup of blessing in, in Psalm 23? The psalmist doesn't sing, my cup is full. He sings, my cup overflows. That's how God gives grace to his people. Some of you really get that God is holy. And you look to God with reverence and awe. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, I'm with you. He is holy. We are to fear the Lord. We are to view him with reverence and awe. That is good and right. But some of you still don't get that God is good. And God is gracious, abundantly so. He is patient and loving beyond your comprehension. He is gentle and kind. His forgiveness never runs out. And his desire is for his children to have strong encouragement. That is the heart of God toward you, Christian. That is always the heart of God toward you. That is why God gave you a promise and an oath. For the promise to Abraham, as the New Testament explains, is ultimately the promise of Jesus Christ. This is the promise to you. Christ is the fulfillment. And as we'll see in Hebrews, the word of Christ is also therefore a promise confirmed with an oath. You notice at the end of verse 20 that we get back to where we were in chapter 5, verse 10. We're back to Jesus as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He had to pause for a little while to prepare us to hear this word. But now he's helping us understand that what he's going to talk about, Jesus and his priestly ministry after the order of Melchizedek, falls within this unchangeable category of a promise confirmed with, the, with an oath. The gospel is unchangeable. And so God wants you to have strong encouragement to hold fast to the promise of Christ. Which is the true blessing and multiplication that we are promised. And it includes forgiveness, cleansing, justification, sanctification, a massive family which is the church, glorification, and an eternal home which is the new heavens and the new earth. But I said there were two reasons God swore this oath. It is the overflow of God's lavish, loving grace. But it is that coupled with the recognition that in his providence, God will at times call you to sail under dark skies and stormy seas that will tempt you to think his promise is failing or your faith will sink. In other words, God gives us two unchangeable things because he knows his providence will test our faith. Now, where do I see that in our text? I see it implied by the fact that the author is appealing to Genesis chapter 22. 
Not 12, not 15, not 17, Genesis 22. And what's happening in Genesis 22? Well, as I said, in Genesis 22, Isaac's actually already been born. So the faith and patience Hebrews is talking about is not Abraham's faith and patience when it took decades for God to actually give Abraham a son by Sarah. This is the faith and patience of when God tells Abraham to kill that promised son after he had already been delivered. And this was a test of faith far greater than the test of waiting for his barren wife to conceive. For what's even more miraculous than a hundred-year-old guy and a 90-year-old barren woman conceiving and giving birth? It is a son that has died being raised from the dead. And yet after Isaac is born, God commands Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, in this case, to obey God would absolutely, absolutely look like the end of God's promises. Because God didn't just promise that he would give Abraham many descendants and make him into a great nation. He promised, as will be reiterated in Hebrews 11, to do that through Isaac. There's no starting over with another son. Everything depends on the life of of Isaac. The death of Isaac, therefore, means the death of the promise. Brothers and sisters, there are times when obedience to God will look like God's promises are over. And that doing what you know is right, it will look like that's actually going to keep you from God's provision and blessing. For faithful obedience may cause you to lose your job. Faithful obedience may sever relationships with people that you love. Faithful obedience may keep you in marriages or circumstances that seem unfulfilling. Faithful obedience may cost you your life and your possessions. So what then? God knows that his providence will at times darken the skies and you will not see how he is keeping his promises. God knows that his providence at times will create stormy seas and you're going to think, I'm sinking. And so he has given us not one, but two unchangeable things so that we can withstand those dark skies and rough seas. He knows he's called you to bear a cross, and so he has given what you need to bear it. Consider Abraham. He has a choice now. He can walk up that mountain with his son by faith, even when he can't comprehend how God will keep his promises. Or he can walk away of, from God in unbelief, doubting that God's command was compatible with his covenant. Say, God, you telling me to do this? This is not good. This is not right. I'm done with you. What did Abraham do? He walked up the mountain by faith. He rises early, he saddles the donkey, he takes two young men along with him and Isaac, he cuts wood for a burnt offering, and he goes to the place that God commanded him. But notice what he says to those two young men as eventually he tells them, you need to stop, the boy and I are going up the rest of the way on the mountain. 
he says to them, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, it, it's clear he's saying, I and the boy are going to go up. I and the boy are coming back down. And he knows what he is supposed to do when he gets to the top of that mountain. How do we explain that? How do we explain when Isaac asks him, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham simply says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Well, the author of Hebrews explains it a little bit later in chapter 11. Where he says, he, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which he, figuratively speaking, did receive him back. Abraham goes up there thinking, God is calling me to kill my son. But that must mean that God is going to raise him from the dead. Because everything depends on Isaac. Abraham was so convinced God would keep his promise, a promise that depended on Isaac, that he was going to obey God no matter what, even if God commanded him to kill his promised son. As Paul says in Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And Abraham does, in a sense, receive his son back from the dead. Not because Isaac was literally raised from the dead, but because God stayed Abraham's hand, points into him to a ram caught in the thicket, and that ram is substituted for Isaac. And it's after all of this that God gives Abraham the oath, confirming the promise once again. An important lesson, therefore, is that giving in to doubt, and there will be times when you doubt and you do not understand why God is telling you to do what he is telling you to do. But giving in to doubt will simply lead you into greater doubt and uncertainty. Plunging ahead by faith will lead you into greater assurance. It is by giving glory to God and following God by faith that leads Abraham to receive God's oath and therefore more assurance. Abraham's faith grew strong only as he gave glory to God, not as he walked away from God. That's what the author's trying to impress upon the Hebrews and upon you and me. Abraham received God's oath and he received the promise as Isaac was returned to him. This is what it means that Abraham obtained the promise. In chapter 11, the author will say, all these Old Testament saints that I'm telling you about haven't received the promise yet. But here he says, Abraham did obtain the promise. So how do we put that back together? Well, to receive Isaac was to receive the sureness that everything that was promised through Isaac would come true. So in obtaining Isaac, he had the promise in sureness, if not yet in fullness. And the same is true for us. As we receive Christ by faith, we obtain the promise, even though the fullness of the promise is yet to come. 
Yet it is so sure in Christ that it is as good as ours. To have Christ is to have a sure hope. A hope that will anchor your soul in the greatest storms. That's what the author says. We have this. Meaning the hope set before us. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And we've already learned all about Christ passing through the heavenly veil. Into the very presence of God. And since he is the foundation of our hope. Our hope follows him and firmly rests upon him. If our hope is the anchor, Christ is the floor upon which the anchor lies. And so our hope, our anchor was with him now in spirit, but it's only a matter of time before we are with him in person. He is the forerunner on our behalf. And one day he will bring us to be where he is. For he promised in John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Set your hope, the anchor of your soul upon Christ and his promise. And I promise you, your hope will never fail. Not meaning your feeling of hope will never falter. But meaning that which your hope is set upon will not disappoint you. It will not be proven false. But as I close, who is it that is to have this strong encouragement? Who is it for? Who is it that may have hope like an anchor? Well, it is those who have fled to Christ for refuge, as you see in verse 18. So I ask you, will you flee to Christ as your only refuge? What does that mean? Well, it means to find refuge in Christ, you must forsake all other refuges. You can't trust in yourself, in your works, in your friends, in your family, in your church, in the world, not in anything else. To find refuge in Christ is to trust in him alone for your salvation. It is to always look to him in his word. It is to call upon his name for forgiveness. It is to walk in his ways, obeying his commands, trusting he knows better than you do. But do you hesitate because you don't view him as a refuge? Or perhaps you're scared he won't receive you. So I simply ask you, have you not seen the heart of God revealed in these verses? Have you not seen his patience, his tenderness, his love, his grace in giving you not only his promise, but his oath? Have you not seen how low he stooped in love to give you his promise and oath, which he didn't have to do, and which in one sense dishonors him to suggest that he needs to swear an oath? Well, let me tell you that he stooped even lower to keep his promise and his oath. He did not just condescend to give an oath to an undeserving man and sinner. He condescended in his son to become a man and be counted as a sinner so that his promises would never fail. 
God did as Abraham said he would do. And he provided the lamb for the sacrifice. And that lamb was not a ram caught in a thicket. It was his beloved son. The son we've been learning about in Hebrews. Who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Who is the son of God and son of man. Who is greater than all angels and all prophets and anything else in this world. He came and he became your sacrifice for sin. So that you would not only die with him. But you would be raised with him him because Abraham's hope did not fail. He believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. He didn't have to raise Isaac from the dead, but he did raise Jesus from the dead. And that is why you may have the full assurance of hope that will never fail. See then God's heart in Christ and flee to him by faith. For he is your refuge, and he desires you to abide in the fortress of his love, living with strong encouragement, and thereby finding strength by two unchangeable things to hold fast to the hope set before you. God desires you to have full assurance that will forever rest on his sure faithfulness. Let us pray. Almighty God, we confess that we are prone to doubt. Our faith is like a leaking rowboat. But we thank you that instead of sinking us as we deserve, you give us everything we need to keep us afloat and bring us safely into your presence. We thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, whom you raised again from the dead, that we might live forever with him and one day be where he is. Help us to keep waiting through faith and patience, knowing that we have obtained the promise which has been confirmed with an oath. Help us by these two unchangeable things to hold fast to the hope that is set before us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.